Hello and welcome to Honey, Are You Happy? A podcast dedicated to breaking down stigma around mental health through authentic and sometimes quite challenging conversations, inspirational stories and educational segments. I'm your host, Joss Alden. I'm an assistant psychologist and ambassador for the UK's leading eating disorder charity, BEAT. I have a wealth of experience in mental health, public speaking, advocacy, research and behaviour change. Having recovered myself from anorexia nervosa, which took over my teens and early 20s, I went on to commence my training in psychology. I'm also an avid blogger, gym junkie, travel addict, with an unhealthy obsession of peanut butter and gin, but not together, obviously. I'm a sister, a daughter, a friend, but most importantly, I am your biggest cheerleader when it comes to helping you put your mental and physical health first. It's my hope that through these episodes, you will be equipped with the relevant knowledge and skills so that you feel empowered when you take hold of your own mental health and well-being. Hello and welcome back. So this week's episode is going to be shorter and hopefully just as sweet and interesting for you, but I'm not interviewing anyone this week. I just thought I would come on and talk about the lessons I've learned and the reflections in recovery and there's five that I want to touch on I wrote a post on them a few weeks back on Instagram on honey you happy and it really just got me thinking about the whole journey of recovery and when working with clients and coaching and doing some mentoring and the work I do through beat it's really just it's something that I often don't stop and kind of think about the journey that I've been on because it's just my life and it's just you know it's something I went through it's something I've been through and now something that I use and definitely has made me into a better assistant psychologist than I think I would have otherwise been and definitely has helped me within my career and my studies but that aside you know it's changed me as a person and also just given me this kind of broader perspective on life and there are things, I guess, that I know now about eating disorders and about recovery that I didn't know before, because when I got diagnosed in 2008, mental health wasn't talked about. There wasn't Instagram. I think I was still on Bebo and MySpace. That was the kind of extent of social media. And yeah, it kind of just, there wasn't scope for me to learn about these things. It was kind of the norm. Size zero was in fashion and that kind of reinforced all my behaviors and became an easy way for me to mask. So I thought I would just take a step back from interviewing and just kind of give you my reflections and five lessons that I've learned in recovery. So number one is that I can be my best friend and my own worst enemy. And that showing compassion towards myself has really been game changing. And this has been a slow burn. This has been a slow process. In fact, I think I've only really got to the stage where I am consistently showing compassion and respect towards myself within the last three or four years. And there are things that definitely have contributed to that. Probably getting older as well and just kind of growing up and growing into myself and feeling confident about other areas of my life, as well as taking time out to explore what being me 
actually means to me. So for me, that's looked like going abroad and being involved in projects abroad that I really wanted to be involved with. So I did some youth work over in Romania and I did some work on cruise ships and kind of was able to combine my love for helping people and um, kind of child work, which I was always kind of in child work and youth work as a teenager. I was able to combine that with my interest in traveling and seeing the world. So kind of, yeah. I think through those experiences, I really became my best friend because I was spending time with myself. I always remember that when I was sick, uh, a mentor that I actually had, she pointed out to me on the phone one evening. She said, Joss, you just don't like spending time with yourself. Like you try and distract yourself away from just sitting and being with yourself all the time. And it was so true in those moments of like stillness, in those moments when it was just me with me. I I just couldn't hack it. I just didn't like it. I didn't like kind of sitting and acknowledging my existence, which sounds really harsh to say out loud, but really good to acknowledge that now I actually love being in my skin and I love the kind of the person that I am and the life that I lead, the friends that I have and the career path that I'm on. And hopefully for you, that shows the ability that you will have to also kind of rewrite your own story and kind of if things don't sit right for you if things don't feel right for you if your health is in a bad place that actually you're the one that's in control of changing that and I think there's a lot of power in that I can also be my own worst enemy and I think we all can I mean it's in those moments that we're often with ourselves and we're not distracted by work or friends or partying or going to the gym or whatever it is that we might be doing that actually our thoughts can run riot. I guess now I have compassion, more compassion towards myself and I understand the way my mind works. And I think that's the brilliant thing about having time with yourself and enjoying time with yourself is actually the willingness to want to know how you work and want to get to know you and what makes you tick and how your mind works and maybe how you can reframe your own thinking or your own behaviors and that only comes through practice in fact I read somewhere that it takes 60 days to change one thought or one belief so if you have an ongoing thought say if ever you're alone you start thinking I'm unlovable that belief that you have which might be a really core belief of yours you know, that's going to take about 60 days minimum for you to consistently work on that to change it. And that's just one belief or attitude. So then if you think if you're actually bombarded with quite a lot of low self-esteem or if you're in eating disorder recovery and you've got a lot of beliefs or worries about food and weight and shape, you suddenly realize that actually recovery is a long process. It's going to take a while and it's going to take a while of you consistently working on yourself and sitting with the parts of you that may not be your best friend, which actually to yourself might be quite ugly. And again, the ability to do that shows self-compassion and shows that actually you're not going to take that out on yourself or see that as a negative. It's part of you and it's part of you that can grow and develop. Number two, I found out that I am way more resilient than I give myself credit for. And asking for help has actually been now reframed in my mind as an act of self-care and a real sign of strength. I think throughout my undergrad and my master's, the amount of times I talked to people who were struggling, who saw that 
reaching out for help or getting extra support from their university or their supervisors or for the wellbeing center was a real sign of, of weakness and that they'd be judged for it. And I was never really afraid to do that because, you know, if I'm feeling bad or if I'm feeling overly anxious and overwhelmed and stressed, I'm not going to perform to my best ability. It's going to hinder me and it's actually not going to get me towards my goals in the way that I want to. So I think I've always thought about the bigger picture. I've always thought, okay, this is how I'm feeling in the now, but actually where am I trying to get to? And, you know, what, what will help me do that? Who are the people that I can call upon as a support system? And I think there's a lot of stigma around asking for help. Probably, I hate to say it, but probably more for men as well. But I also like that in my own life now, I have a lot of really close guy friends who I know that they know I have their back and that if anything goes wrong or if they're struggling, even if it's in their relationships or something stressful happens at work, I know I'll get a text and I know that I can be someone they rely on and someone they feel comfortable reaching out to ask for help. And I think that that's a real strength and I think that those guys who do that I don't see them as weak I don't see them as you know annoying or a burden I see that as real strength and real proactiveness in order to like help themselves and I think I've realized that in myself that through this process it has made me more resilient I can deal with a lot more than I thought I could definitely a decade ago and it's something that actually when people ask me do you think you'll ever relapse again uh, touch wood I won't and I don't think I would and it's because of that resilience and it's because of that self-awareness that I've built that I just don't think it would ever be a possibility and I think within that resilience is learning about the early warning signs in myself which will look different to everyone and also knowing when those early warning signs start showing what are the things I can do to keep myself from not relapsing how can I check in on myself and keep myself accountable to staying well I'm very lucky as well in the fact that I don't really get any eating disorder thoughts at all anymore and that is a blessing to say out loud because it's something I thought I would never get rid of but I really don't and it's something that if a thought does pop up to do with body image or food I would say it's in the realm of normal it's nothing more than you know another girl would probably get a bad body image day around their period or you know especially around my period if I start eating more especially more chocolate or wanting more high fat foods um would probably be like oh my gosh I'm feeling a bit you know whatever it is fluffy whatever words you want to insert there and I can then reframe that in my mind and that to me shows resilience it's that ability to be self-aware to understand why something has happened and to do something about it or just to kind of accept it in the present and be like okay this is how I'm feeling today this is how I'm thinking today it doesn't have to impact on other areas of my life so number three is I learned that when I put my mind to something I can achieve anything Within reason, of course, because my skill set definitely does not extend to, say, aerospace engineering or anything like that. But, but when I put my mind to recovering, I could actually achieve it and it seemed achievable. Recovering from an eating disorder has to be the hardest thing that I've ever done, hands down. And in this whole process, self-belief was essential. Um, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but it definitely was an absolute roller coaster of ups and downs. It wasn't a linear a journey. And I think from recovering, it really showed me the power I have to rewrite 
my life and that actually it's okay to give things a go and fail. I relapsed quite a few times and it's okay to learn from those relapses and not see them as failures, but to kind of reflect on them, take the lessons I've learned and move forward. And although that was in a kind of illness context, I think I now apply that to my career. I don't get everything right all the time. In my studies, I definitely didn't get everything right all the time. And, you know, it's that ability to accept that perfection does not exist. And actually all I can do is show up as myself and be as authentic and try my best. And if that's not good enough, then that's okay. It might not be good enough for some, but it will be good enough for me because I've given my all. I think through that, I've also excelled in the psychology world within my studies. And that has been through my experience. And I really don't think if I hadn't gone through it, I don't think I would be where I am today in in terms of I had to self-teach my A-levels, which meant that by the time I got to university and everyone was, you know, independent learning for the first time, you know, I was already quite skilled in doing that. I was quite used to having to go away and do extra research or read extra because I always felt during my A-levels that I was a step behind everyone just because I didn't know what they were doing in my classes. And I was always scared of getting into that exam room, opening the paper and not knowing any of the answers. So I always kind of did a bit more to know a bit extra. And I think when I got to uni, that same skill set then just became automated. It was something that I was used to doing. I was used to kind of structuring my time. I was used to kind of um, making sure that I could study and stay well. And it's something I didn't get right all the time. And I definitely had a tough time in my second year of uni, but um, it's something that I showed myself. You know, if I really want to achieve something, I can. And I think that's true for everyone. That's not just true for me. And when someone comes to me and says, do you think recovery is possible? I just, or like, how recovered can I get? I kind of answer and say, the sky's the limit. You know, where do you want to get to? Because the answer is not like about how long you've been ill or, you know, what's happened to you in the past. Yes, there may be barriers caused by those things, but the sky is the limit in terms of where you want to get to and in terms of the behaviors you want to challenge and the anxiety you're willing to push through, the people you're willing to work with. So I think, you know, if you really want something, like I really wanted recovery, then you can achieve it. And with that same determination, you can channel that into other more proactive areas other than a self-destructed eating disorder. I think as well, I obviously wasn't motivated to recover all the time. It took me quite a long, a long period before I actually decided, you know what, enough is enough. And it took a couple of relapses, a couple of um, inpatient admissions. And it wasn't until I finally reached an admission in an adult ward and it was completely different to being in child and adolescent services that I thought, oh my gosh, this is horrific. And this is going to be my life. My life is going to be being in hospital for eight months or so and then coming out, relapsing and going back in again and going through this grueling process, which is so anxiety provoking for me. And I thought, do you know what? I'm watching this impact my family, my relationships, my friendships are fading away. There's got to be a better way. And it was kind of that realization that my life could be more and then wanting to explore what that could be.
So one of the ways I did this was actually in the adult ward, there wasn't much going on. So in children and adolescent services, there's normally quite a lot of activity going on, groups to be engaged with, maybe even outings. We went and did photography. I remember at a certain period in your kind of um, treatment program, you could go out and do like climbing and stuff and walks. And it was it was really great. Like your days were quite packed. But in an adult ward, it literally was just like structured around your meal times and maybe once a week seeing a therapist. And that was it. It was it was really dull and it was really challenging. And so I used that time to create for myself a vision book. And I know most people do a vision board, but I had the time and I had the resources. I went to a hobby craft and um, bought all the scrapbooking things. And I really just made every page about something in my future that I wanted to experience. So there's a page on there about being a mother eventually one day. There's a page about going traveling and I did a whole world map in different colors of cut out paper and things. I think there was stuff about um, working as a nurse because at the time I think I was still debating doing nursing <clears throat> and there was stuff about you know being back with family and having friendships and all this kind of stuff that I was kind of losing and kind of felt unreachable really. And that whole book was something I could just flick through on a bad day and remind myself of where I'm heading, of, of what the bigger picture is, because eating disorders are so all-consuming and they're really isolating and they will try and take you away from everything good that you can achieve. So I think the best thing has been being able to look back at that book and some of the vision boards that I created and actually realizing how much of that stuff I have done. And that's been a real kind of, Oh, just a real proud moment for me and something that I always advocate other people do is, is really think big about what life could look like after recovery like who would you like to be because an eating disorder takes over your identity as well so it's a real chance to through recovery explore yourself and explore who you want to be without this other kind of eating disorder identity attached to you and if that feels scary you know you're only putting it down on like a vision board or in a, in, in a book or something, you know, it doesn't have to come to fruition. There's a lot of good for letting yourself kind of develop that self-belief and that motivation that actually life could be like this if I didn't have an eating disorder. So number four is that my body is not a reflection of my self-worth. I have a lot to offer and I choose to see all that's good in myself and not rely on others' fickle opinions of me or a number on a scale as a marker of who I am or what I can become. And I think this, again, has been only one that's really sunk in about three or four years ago. And I think it developed quite late because in my 20s, I think I was still quite hung up of other people's opinions of me. And I kid you not, I woke up on my 30th birthday and I literally felt like I don't give a fuck anymore about what people think. <laughs> For me, it was quite like a magical age. It felt like my 20s were quite this self-discovery period of trying different jobs and going abroad and coming home and trying to live independently and studying and all this kind of stuff was going on. And then finally at 30 I kind of found my feet and I think as well within that that kind of journey of like being comfortable with myself and doing the things that I felt I really wanted to do and not because someone else was telling me to do it or because I thought people would be proud of me if I achieved xyz it really just helped me see 
where my worth actually is and the things that I bring to people's life and the, the things that people bring to mine. I started seeing that not in the way that my body looked, whereas in my teens and early 20s, I was probably a bit more image focused and a bit more tied up in in my worth and the value that other people see in me being about how I appear. And sometimes rejection in those situations has made me internalize that as there's something fundamentally wrong with me as a person or there's something fundamentally wrong with my body. And I think as well, detaching things from my body has been another way to show self-compassion so often in the past if I did really badly or if I was going for a stressful period and I felt like say my grades weren't good or um, I wasn't doing well at work I'd probably take it out on myself and you know make myself do more exercise or make myself go on a diet and and now I don't but I know at times it can really feel like it becomes a really big deal and you can think if, if I just change myself then I'll be happier and that message is reinforced to us as well through a lot through social media and in the past through lots of magazines, adverts on the TV, shows on the on the TV. I remember watching Super Size versus Super Skinny when I was really sick and probably wasn't the best choice at the time. Um, but all these kind of things that we just take in that reinforce that if you just change the way you look, or if you just change your weight, then you'll be happier, then you'll be more acceptable in the eyes of society. And with that, your self-worth will increase. And so to challenge that, I really had to get comfortable again with, with just being me and kind of accepting who I am and, and really looking at what am I enjoying and, and what don't I enjoy? And, and when does my body feel good? And actually, what makes my body feel a bit yucky? At university, I was happy to go out drinking five times a, a week, but probably wouldn't do that anymore, you know? Wouldn't make me feel the best. Um, but it's that learning, it's that collecting kind of data about yourself. And, and that's what our identity is. Our identity is just as all this data that we've collected about ourselves and kind of compiled into how we see ourselves. And I think sometimes we can be really biased towards the negative data we collect, other people's feedback on us, people's opinions, people's point of views, um, rejection from people, all this kind of stuff. And we miss out on then actually looking at the really good things that that we we can we can bring to other people's lives and that the worth that we are just inherently have just from existing. I think a really good piece of work that's helped me recently is as an assistant psychologist, we do lots of training. And at the moment, we've been doing this thing called the tree of life, which um, sounds very psychological when you say it out loud. It's only something you come across in, in the realms of psychology. Um, but that's really helped me go back to like the grassroots and um, and kind of look at all the things that kind of build up my life and the skill sets and the coping mechanisms and the influential people and places and episodes in my life that have positively impacted who I am today that's a piece of work as well that if anyone's interested in you can definitely dm me on instagram and I'll tell you more about I also think within this like I put way too much weight on other people's opinions of me which I guess we all do and we all care what people think of us and we all want to be seen you know as, as good people as people that others like to be around I definitely put too much weight on certain people's opinions of me and people pleasing and trying to get other people's approval or love or attention. And now I just don't have time for that. <laughs> and I don't feel I need to prove to someone why they should have me in their life. And I think before when I was very, very sick, you know, it was a way to hide from the world and not be hurt from people. Didn't want to be hurt and didn't want to be rejected and 
in doing so I rejected myself and then hid away so now I definitely kind of can see things more neutrally I guess and not take it so personally within this learning boundaries and learning that actually you know mistreatment isn't acceptable and if people are uh, playing games or if people are giving you mixed messages or if people are, are treating you poorly then your self-worth should tell you to cut that person out or to distance yourself at least I know that's not always possible especially when they're family members so I think that's just another thing within kind of learning about my self-worth and not seeing it as a reflection of, of myself and my body has been you know knowing when to put boundaries in place and and knowing who's good to be around and actually who's a little bit toxic to me and who who makes me doubt myself and my abilities and finally number five I've learned that forgiveness is such a powerful tool my eating disorder was never about my about my body it was never about food weight or shape although it really did feel like it was and when I talk about eating disorders I always use the iceberg analogy so if you think of an iceberg in your head you've got the lovely big top bit that the Titanic hit and that bit is everything you can see and that would include your restrictive eating then your laxative use purging behaviors excessive exercising anything that is what you observe in eating disorders and they're the kind of the the symptoms as such are the things that maybe when you go to treatment people tend to focus on um or maybe they're the early warning signs that meant that your friends or family have come to you and be like oh we notice you've lost a lot of weight or we notice you're throwing your food away it's all those kind of behaviors that make up eating disorders sit at the top of that iceberg but underneath that are the things that drive it and these is this is why eating disorders are a functional illness because the function of all those behaviors you can see is to cope with or to numb the things that are going on underneath which could be anxiety it could be stress it could be ptsd and trauma it could be you know it, it might just be that you've dealt with a major life event like a, a divorce has gone on in your family or or grief or whatever it is and that the eating disorder has come in as a way to help you kind of numb out or cope with those feelings. And really, the turning point for me was when I really realized what my eating disorder was functioning for. And my eating disorder was about what happened to my body and how I related to my body in the aftermath of that. Projecting feelings of shame onto my body and and disgust and guilt all those ugly feelings <laughs> were projected onto my body and then taken out through developing my eating disorder I always say low food low mood and that's because our food helps so much with our brain chemistry and feeling happy feeling sad regulating sleep all the above so really when you restrict your intake so low you can't feel anything it's literally like being numb I remember very clearly watching like a comedy show with my brothers one night when I was at home in the early stages of, of getting treatment and I just couldn't laugh like I knew what was being said was funny and I just I just couldn't laugh I didn't have the energy I didn't I just didn't find it funny I just felt numb and an eating disorder can be a way to cut off from painful feelings I think within that, there was a lot that went on to, to, to kind of deal with that situation that my eating disorder developed for, but actually choosing to forgive and let go of the shame and the resentment that I was hanging on to meant that I could move on with my life. This does not mean that I justified or tolerated what had happened to me, 
by no means does it mean that it was okay and that I think you know the person should have got away with it or whatever but it just meant that I was choosing to move on from that kind of victim mentality and I talked more about that in one of my earlier episodes about changing from the victim to the survivor mentality so I really recommend listening to that one if you haven't done so already it also meant that I could let go of resentment and kind of accept what I cannot control and what I cannot change with eating disorders there's so much of it is about control and I feel like a lot of the people I come across have had something happen to them in their life, be it bullying or abuse or assault, a a loss in the family, a divorce, something that has felt out of their control. And then eating disorders come in and given them this big safety blanket, this big hug of control that has been so important to them. And again, being functional. So actually, I had to come to a, a conclusion where I just had to accept that I cannot control everything. I cannot change things that have happened and I cannot control the future and what will happen. But I can control how I move forward from this place and I can kind of control (laughs) the outcome to certain extents in terms of, you know, thinking about the bigger picture and what I want my health to look like and what I would like my relationships to look like in my career and things that would actually give my quality of life meaning, purpose and fulfillment. So in doing this, it really did give me freedom to step into the fullness of myself. And I do believe this for everyone I work with as well. And that's why so much of the work I do with people is really motivational and is looking at where they want to be, the bigger picture, but then also looking at what we can do today. What can we start changing today that feels manageable? It was something that I'm really passionate about today is helping people find their purpose and through recovery, kind of rebuilding their, their life and as well as their body. I'm really interested to know if you're in your recovery journey or that if you are recovered, I'm really keen to hear what recovery has taught you. I think it's great to just pause and reflect and think of the lessons that we've learned, how it's made you into who you are today and how you can then keep moving forward. I really hope you've enjoyed this shorter and sweeter episode. I hope you found it insightful and helpful. There is a free coaching call that you're entitled to for listening to this podcast. You just have to go over to the show notes and click the link in the bio, and then you'll be sent through to the booking page. There's also a free journaling guide in there. It's full with different kinds of journaling styles and pages to help you start really picking apart some of maybe your thoughts and beliefs and start reflecting. There's even a gratitude bit on there because I think it's always good to think about the positives that we're experiencing as well. I hope you've enjoyed this and I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, stay happy and stay happy.